0: hi this is Brenton spencer and you're listening to the fsf podcast
1: the show that made the flash wish we talked as fast as he runs question though if we go reverse flash does that mean we talk slower
2: our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor the Red Shirt widows and orphans fund which supports the wish Upon a teen foundation that helps out sick kids when they need it most and just imagine the comfort you'll give Red Shirt crewman number 1940 He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and joins the Flash in the battles against Gorilla Grodd and the Reverse Flash, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope because the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and what's left of his speed suit.
1: All right, guys, our guest today is a longtime cinematographer, producer, and director. He's been involved with shows that you know and love, like CW's Flash, Stargate Atlantis, The Outer Limits, Rambo's First Blood. Friday the 13th, Jason takes Manhattan, and I could keep going. His IMDb list is very impressive and quite long, but we are excited to welcome Brenton Spencer to the FSF podcast. Welcome to the show,
0: Brenton. Uh, Thank you, Tim and Kathleen. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Been looking forward to this. Thank you. Well,
1: well, thank you. We'll see how you feel the same way in about a half hour. (laughs) Uh.
2: You know, so far, we haven't had many people change their minds, so...
1: No, actually I I I think our track record is pretty good as far as that's concerned so we'll keep going. All right, so Brett, you've had a a a very distinguished career in the pop culture world and it's allowed you to be many part of many shows that like I mentioned in the introduction that we that we know and that we love. But one of the things that we like to do here on this show is that um we're nerds, self-proclaimed nerds and we love a good origin story and we love to know what influences the guests that we're talking to that got them to be the person that they are now and what got them into the industry and what keeps them going. So in the story of Brenton Spencer, what encouraged you to be part of the entertainment world?
0: Well, I think the the beginnings of that, that spark that led me to consider uh, the film and television world um, was probably early on when I was a kid influenced by cowboy movies and we would all watch them in the neighborhood, and then we would go out in the streets and, and reenact them. Then um, we would reenact, uh, you know, war movies. Uh, um, and then later on, when uh, the OG Batman hit the screen, and what would the uh, TV screen, what would that be around, I don't know, 64 or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that blew our minds because that was the, Kind of the first time, well, that camp, you know, had been introduced mm. to like really serious stuff because Batman scared the crap out of me when I first came across Batman. So, Batman, when I when I, when I was a, a kid, um, my mom bought a typewriter through a classified ad, a used one, and I went to this. She appeared to be the oldest woman in the world. And she sold my mom this typewriter. And she said, my boys, my last boy went on, this is around 62, my last boy went off to university. Do you read comics? And she pointed to a box of comic books. Would you like those comics? Well, sure. And I picked up this box of comics and we rode home on the bus. Now, up until that time, I'd been strictly a, um, oh, what was a classic comic guy. So it was a reenactment of uh, Robinson Crusoe or Oliver Twist as con- and I opened this. So these were Batman and uh, some Superman. I remember there was there were no um, almost exclusively Batman and, and Superman. There was no marvel in there at all and that began began my allegiance to DC. Now okay. remember so you can imagine this treasure trove. And that kind of got in where, and I don't even want to tell you what happened to them, but that got me into the, the, uh, you know, the darkness of and the weight and the gravitas and the fact that a hero can also have this anti-hero thing. And then out of nowhere comes this camp version of And my mind, it just opened my mind up to storytelling and 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 then we would we would write you know we were working on a novel about whaling we had never read moby dick or anything like that so it began at the the spark for me that influenced me was watching westerns playing cowboys and indians then watching war movies which are essentially westerns redesigned right i'm such a western fan that i think that everything is essentially has a Western motif and structure to it, but that's just me reading into, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, I was um, then through writing and poetry and I, I was accepted into a creative writing program at the University of British Columbia. And um, I was all in uh, and I was going to be a poet, could you imagine? And then I was looking through the calendar, I realized that they had a, a film production, oh, boom. And that was the beginning of the beginning for me, migrating over into into film production.
2: That
1: Interesting. Is so cool. All right,
2: that's a great origin story.
0: It is and, actually, yeah.
2: And that just like borderline happenstance of the hey, do you want this box of comic books? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like that's great. Oh, and I love the I love the nineteen sixties Batman. It is so much fun. It
0: oh is. yeah, it's that because it's. Up until then, I had no sense of, and I'm talking about when I say me, then it's it's me and my peers.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, all these 10, 11, 12 year olds running around. So all of a sudden we have a sense that there's something other than, than straight up film. There's pop culture and pop culture kind of had it at its own rules and it was an outlier and it could be provocative and mm-hmm. it could be pie in your, face kind of thing and of course around that time um uh, uh Lichtensteins became aware of his um work which had sort of uh, you know obviously that comic book kind of uh where you could see the uh, the printing mm-hmm. dots on it um and then comics were were popularized uh in his work and you could see the balloons you know, like oh my god, I left my baby at the uh, shopping mall or whatever, you know, whatever that kind of thing was. What's interesting for me about comics, I, you know, I, once I got into the into the film business, uh, and I started as an independent filmmaker, and then knew that I wanted to get into um, you know Hollywood, the Hollywood mode of production. Started as an assistant, loading mags, banging the slate pulling focus then, now it's time to operate. And a buddy said, we've got a TV series going, a friend from university, he was way way ahead of us, would you like to operate? And I learned always to say yes, always to jump in and then figure it out, Mm -hmm. you know, always to go for it, always to roll the dice and, um, you know, never say no. But I realized I don't know anything about eyeline. So where do I go to find out about how uh, when how people look at each other? Because there's a traditional structure in TV and film at the time that you have a scene with people looking at each other. Well, those people have to always look right, we'll say, and everybody else, they have to look left. But I had never considered that. I was only worried about keeping them in focus, you know, and pulling the knob. So I went back to comics. And looked at and what looked at the structure in comic books, and um, there was just the beginning of and maybe the inkling, the very beginning perhaps of graphic novels. That would be so. This was around 1981, um, but I just went to I think just straight up. Uh, I went back to Batman, and just started looking. Okay, they look that way. They look that way.
2: That's cool. And then as I
0: became you know, I went through different iterations of 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 filmmaking and being a filmmaker and being a film worker until i I had a new concept of Eyeline, which is just throw it all out the window. What's the very best place to put the camera? because it's I've learned, and I feel that the that it's only about what the camera sees. Mm-hmm. It's all and the camera. I mean, this may sound like 101 filmmaking, but that that what the camera sees through that lens that defines everything. And, and it's really, you know, sentient in the sense that we can have our own judgment. But uh-uh, it's what the camera sees. And the camera sometimes the camera is a round peg that's put into a square hole. Mm-hmm. And we, fil- as filmmakers, we have to always find the hole that the camera fits in naturally. And we have to take the time when we go on a set or we and when we just go to our locations, you know, to hold hands with the camera, in a sense. And, and like, where do you want to go? As if you're taking a child to, you know, the fairground or to a museum, you know? Do you want to go in the mm-hmm. park section or get, you know? So listen... Yeah. And you, which means just feel,
2: right? Yeah, just feel what
0: the camera wants to see.
2: That's cool. I'd never thought about it that in depth before, but that's that's really fascinating to hear about trying to figure out where the camera fits best. That's really cool. And you've already kind of gone into my first question that I actually had prepared, but I think we can we can elaborate on it a little bit more because you're talking about your introduction to to the DC universe and that first box of comic books being where your loyalty to DC started. So being a fan of comics before you started with Flash, were you a fan of the character Flash to begin with? And who is your favorite superhero in all of the, the universes you've now been exposed to?
0: Yeah, my, Who is my favorite superhero? My favorite superhero, well, it's, it's not Marvel. Um, I always felt Marvel to be soft and you know, the blonde-haired, f- freckle-faced kid who's got the Johnny Seven and always gets the, like the best toys at Christmas. But DC's like the edgy kid, maybe, you know, who wears his older kid's clothes, a hand-me-down kid. And so in the, my favorite comic book, it's gotta be Batman. I'm sorry, I'm going right back to it. But in that box, there, and I've never heard of it since, there was a comic called Elastic Lad, and that was Jimmy Olsen who had these superhero powers where he could stretch. And I never, ever, ever saw that reference again. It was called Elastic Lad. But yeah, it's Batman because he's dark and he's mysterious. And, and he um, has f- human frailties for mm-hmm. a superhero. You know? yeah. he, he felt while he was a superhero he always felt more human than superman f- ever felt human
2: yeah and i i definitely agree with that i think especially because in the in the grand scheme of things batman is a vigilante he's not he doesn't have superpowers he doesn't have a, oh, a he has one money
1: He's got a bank account. That's a he's superpower. Got, he's got
2: an impressive bank account that I guess could count as a superpower.
1: <laughs> he gets to do whatever he wants with that bank account. If he needs it, he builds it.
2: But I feel like that has been part of the reason that Batman has been so relatable to so many people is he doesn't have he's not a Norse god. He's not the god of thunder. He's not been injected with a super soldier serum. He's just a guy who got tired of what was happening in his city, who lost his parents tragically at a young age i i definitely agree that the nitty-gritty of batman is i i also love batman so i'm right there with you
0: well you know uh, i'd like to talk about whether or not he has superpowers because in the whole like german expressionist world that kind of came and then there was that crucible of you know, of Marxism and self-realization and becoming the very best that a person can be. That's why Karl Marx said, uh, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So Batman became the very, very best that he could be and so let's use a superlative so he had to be extra or super you know so there's something that that you know be, you know everything that that a human being can do he maximized that and became like just this little bit more because he, his physical feats are not your average kind of human feat that's true That's true. I'll give you that for sure. And so there's something mysterious about it. Okay. Other straight up superheroes. There is an outside influence. Mm -hmm. It's radioactive or something cosmic. But maybe, maybe, maybe Batman was his metaphysical. Maybe something out there, you know, maybe some kind of connection. I don't know, but something I have
2: never thought of it that way, and I absolutely love this.
0: Yeah. yeah see, I've always, I've always just thought
1: of it as an, an intense drive to avoid failure, because he, I think, in a lot of, you know, and I've, and I've seen it in, in some of the revisionings and retellings of his father's death, that he felt that his father had failed, because, you know, he, he was, was killed, and, and, you know, and, and and things like that so he wanted to go with the exact opposite and make sure that he didn't fail that he would could su- that he could succeed and so he had maybe not superpowers, but he had this super drive that that allowed him to push past what the normal guy was going to where the normal guy was going to stop bruce wayne was going to keep pushing batman was going to keep pushing and go past that even if he was physically tired and exhausted and and you know, uh, even broken at times, he was going to fix himself to get bigger, better, faster.
2: I can definitely see that as its own superpower though.
0: Yeah. I mean, he has this extraordinary conflict of, of the need to revenge and be vengeful and to commit, you know, most of the or go contrary to most of the 10 commandments and then at the same time there's a conflict because he knows that he's better than that and and it's that you know it's that it's that conflict that creates his ability to I'm going to reach up there I'm going to throw my bat hook I'm going to I'm going to jump I'm going to confront I'm going to drive the batmobile in an insane like, like, not even a Formula One driver can do. And he has, he faces fear all the time. It's like, it's like, you know, we all, all humans fear. I mean, that's how we survive. We've got to know. Oh shit! Don't stick your head in the dragon's mouth, right? Don't stick mm-hmm. your in the, in the in the lion's mouth. Um, he rejects all that. Does he have a death wish? And no because his perhaps because then he is there must be some internal pain that he's always struggling with Mm -hmm. you know what Well, like his parents were killed in the most horrible way and and he does feel that his father is he ashamed of his father because he feels his father failed and therefore does he have some kind of weird shame that he has to overcompensate for I don't know man that's a good question. Yeah. All right. So let's let's talk
1: about one of one of the films that uh, I'm gonna call it a film, because in my opinion they are. Uh, back in 1995, you directed the music video for a song called "Push" by a band called Moist. Wow. And uh, it was nominated for a Much Music and a Juno Award for the best alternative music video, which it ended up winning. I believe the Much Music Award uh, nomination in the process. So two things from this that I noticed. Number one, uh, I was not familiar with the band moist before this, which is odd to me, because uh, that was the type of music I was listening to in high school in 1995. So that was that was should have been right up my alley. And I was surprised that I really enjoyed the song. So I've actually gone out and I've checked out a little bit more from the band. So yeah. Uh, But here's where my question is. So I told you all that so I could ask you this. I've heard it described before that music videos, uh, should not be looked at as, as just a blase piece of art, but instead they should be viewed as a movie short, just with music instead of dialogue. Would you say that that comparison is fair? And if not, how would you describe it?
0: No, I totally agree with it because MTV changed TV. Because when MTV needed the content, they um, threw money at people who really didn't know how to make movies. So they weren't shackled by all these conventions of Eyeline, you gotta look here, you you gotta look there by all the Hollywood convention of how you have to do stuff. And they just put the camera where the camera wanted to be. They got that, MTV changed tv it uh you just it was it became about story and character set to music but there's mm-hmm. always a story there and the characters of course either it's the it's the parallel narrative that goes on about the guy and the girl or whatever or it's just straight up what the musicians are doing cut cut the music and and yeah so they are movies they're legitimate narratives okay. Did I a question? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I just thought it was kind of interesting because, you know, I, I I grew up in the MTV generation. You know, I was I was born in 76. I I grew up with, you know, watching, coming home from school and turning on MTV and watching the, the top 10 videos of the day and uh, Total Request Live and all that kind of stuff and uh, things that were on MTV at the time. So I always, personally, always looked at them like little miniature movies for the most part. I mean, there were some that were just you know, people were just doing something. So they have a video of something, you know, for, for their song sometime something that they could, you know, use to promote their, their music. But I always thought for the most part, uh, a, a good video tied into the song well and it, and it got people to talk about it. It got people to have a conversation, not only about the band, but about the song and, and what the, what that maybe, you know, Hey, what did you think that music video meant? And, you know, did that have anything to do with the song or do you think help it helped explain the lyrics and, and things along those lines. And I think that that movie shorts, if you're, if you're looking at it at a short movie, it can do the very same thing for the topic. You can go from. From having, you know, instead of having an hour and a half movie, you have a, a ten minute movie, and they have to get right into the meat of things. And you're here it is, and here's all the information, and here's and it and it drives thought and conversation if it's done well. And so I, for me, I see a lot of parallels between the two.
0: Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. The 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 music video, the short film, uh, uh, they're all um, part of that the that, that narrative structure of a Hollywood feature film um it's aristotle it's the beginning the middle and an end
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know it, and um and the uh, identifying uh, protagonist antagonist and then of course it's a whole there's a hero's journey in every gogo's uh music video you know yeah <laughs> uh, yeah um so yeah the structure i find it short it's very, very, very difficult. Um, um, it'd, be, it'd be easier for me to do a feature film, I tell you, <laughs> the right one, shoot one, than to shoot a short film with the kind of integrity that they require. Yeah. It's, it's really distilled. And every frame, every close up, every insert has to have be 100%. You can't, and, and a longer form narrative will say 90 minutes. Or TV 4240, 42 minutes and 40 seconds. You have have an opportunity to build that. But a short film, six to eight, eight minutes, 10 minutes. Um, you, you, the, it's still a narrative structure. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe it doesn't have the subtext and and the sub-subtext, and you know, the opportunity to um, you know kind of head fakes narrative head fakes with red with red herrings and things like that you know to be Hitchcockian about it mm-hmm. but um, no it's the short film is has the same integrity as you know at the 40, 42, 40 feature film or a TV or 90 minute feature film yeah okay. just a difference the in the process film. and and how you get into it. We grew up in, so in, in Canada, when I went to uh, movies when I was a kid, so I remember, well, okay, I wanted to see um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And I remember w- watching the news broadcast the night before, my buddy and everybody, there's only, at that time, there's only one channel in our city. And they made a joke, Lawrence of Arabia, you better bring some water with you because this is a desert movie, so we went we brought lots of water (laughs) because we thought it was going to be really hot for some reason but at the very beginning um they would play god save the queen and there was a the length of god save the queen i don't know what it is a minute and there was a film cut to queen elizabeth Mm -hmm. her coronation and different things. and we'd all stand up and we'd all sing god save the queen and then they would play oh canada and so fish boats in, in the east and logging and manufacturing and the prairies and then the mountains and then the Pacific and more fishing. We'd stand up and we'd sing Oh Canada to, uh, to a, this short film that was cut to. And then there was always the short film before the main attraction, which was almost exclusively a national film board film, either in a narrative rarely an animation at that time or a documentary so from the youngest age of going to movies you know about my first movie I think I may have been five and that was yeah I was five with my sister and it introduced to the to the short film and it just seemed the most natural thing in the world there are short movies and then there's the uh the main attraction and there were usually two f- two films except for lawrence of arabia which had a uh, a break in the middle of it so i grew up with the short film and uh yeah this is totally legitimate yeah this is a short film and then there's going to be the feature <laughs> so all right oh,
2: so looking at your incredible career i actually found an old interview with you from 2008 regarding your movie never cry werewolf in it you offered the piece of advice if i've learned anything in my career it's this if you're looking to put someone in a werewolf costume or any creature costume use an actor use an athlete use a stuntman but don't ever use a classical ballet dancer a grand jet is just not scary which is a fantastic quote so i was wondering (laughs) if in your 15 years since that interview Have you gained any other valuable career advice that you'd like to pass on?
0: I remember that. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, and that's so true. And what else have I learned that has like that weight to it?
2: It was just making me think of a werewolf and a tutu and that would not be scary.
0: No, we hired this stunt man who, uh, and it wasn't necessarily my idea, but somehow, well, you know, whatever. And he was a, he was a classically trained ballet dancer uh, when he, and so his, from the age of four or five, he would, and he was a, a Russian dancer, was over in Canada. So all his moves, the way he stood, the way he walked into a room, that should have been my first clue. These grand gestures when he introduces himself. You know, I want someone dragging their knuckles across the floor, someone who's, uh, you know, helmet has been smashed into their face, either in a hockey game or a football game, and they knew pain because a werewolf, that when he turns, when the moon changes, that's physical pain. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, what have I learned since then? I think I've really learned, to let go and really trust. What I love is trust chance. If there's a mistake, if something happens, I allow myself, I think what I've really learned is to embrace kismet, embrace mistakes, embrace, if something doesn't work, a prop, or something we've worked out with the choreography in a fight. Don't try to fight what the natural form of things go with it. And that's why I love the um, uh, Johnny, Johnny Depp in Ed Wood. There was a scene Mm -hmm. where one of the guys, one of those guys was trying to, one of the actors was trying to go through a doorway, but he was so big, he bumped into the door. And I think the DP said, uh, uh, but Ed, he, he he bumped into the wall and the wall moved. And Ed Wood said, well, he would do that. Of course he would do that. And what's that so brilliant about Ed Wood is that he just embraced what he was given and gave it, you know, gave it love, gave it credibility, gave it respect, instead of trying to fight against you know, what he didn't have. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, he had hubcaps for flying saucers, for goodness sake, and, and a bunch of really burned out. Um, you know horror film actors, and and what has it given us? Classics. These extraordinary classics were which were the antithesis of the slickness of what Hollywood was trying to do. Hollywood, you know, there's a concept called Fordism, which is the uh, you know the mechanical assembly line uh, production of something of a widget, mm-hmm. right? And of course because of Henry Ford. And that's the reason why Hollywood films have been able to do- dominate because they got into the understanding of Fordism and the manufacture of film and Hollywood movies went out around the world. In, in the 20s and 30s, prior to that, there were huge cinemas in every country, India, uh, Morocco, uh, of course, England, France, uh, every, um, every country almost that I can think of in the world. Certainly, China and probably in particular Shanghai had this incredibly vibrant um, cinema, but Hollywood is like the eight hundred pound gorilla, and it's saturating, and it's going to. There's not going to be room for the you know indigenous. cinema is that a good thing instead of a bad thing it's it's just an is thing Mm -hmm. right and um out of that we've came to understand uh you know appreciate uh the auteur auteur theory and maybe understand that directors are the are the are the true authors of of a movie and that's why we revere them today when we talk about a movie we we really talk about the director i think you know yes usually yeah, yeah. And exactly. who gave us that? Well, it was Hollywood just pouncing on everyone. And the French film theorist, that was his name, Andre Bazin, mm-hmm. came up with that concept of hey, wait a tick. These different directors, Howard Hawks in particular, I think he was attracted to, have a very specific style that's generating that. Cre- so, and then we revere, of course, uh, Hitchcock, Spielberg. Um, George Lucas is a complete outlier. Um, I, I, I. Yes, he's a director, but George Lucas is more than that. <laughs> Isn't he? Uh, he's oh, not yeah. a, Wasn't he just too busy to do Raiders and gave it over to Spielberg or? What, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. Um yeah, Hollywood gave us gave us the auteur theory. I don't know how we got to to this, this wonderful moment.
2: Talking about the things you've learned since not putting a ballet dancer in a werewolf costume.
0: <laughs> wow, it always goes back to that, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yeah. So it's letting go. And 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 being able to drop back after you prep, 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 and prepare and visit your locations. If you're going to shoot a location at night, scout it at night.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And 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 be ready and 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 know your props and know when you're going to need the rubber knife, the double, and the real neck for the close-up. When you can use a pistol from a distance when it can just be a, a widget, or does it have to be the real thing? What kind of of a, can we go with this bare bones location? Does it have to be a car or can we be on a streetcar because we can afford that? So once you dissect that script and you're ready to go and you know everything and you know exactly how you're going to do it, you've got your shot list, just let it all go. And go in there. And, and be and be ready to accept the spirit of the location. And I don't mean the poltergeist of it, but I'm the, the feeling, the vibe right. of, of everything coming together and to be aware of that. And that means as a director, you have to be in two places. You have to be up close with the camera or now the monitor, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: right, Very close, but at the same time, you have to have these, these two uh, left side, right side brain going where you're back and you're really wide and you're watching everything and you're being aware of uh, the pop fly or whatever kind of Mm -hmm. of thing. So that's what I've learned is to let go and to trust. Okay. Being Yeah. I I was brought up in a very rigid system of of filmmaking. Like I said, it wasn't until MTV came when you could be handheld, when you could be cool. And remember the musicians, they didn't know from formal filmmaking. So they just knew from... MTV. So they knew that the camera should should go in really cool and interesting places. The camera should be alternative. All right. So, Brenton, we mentioned at the outset that you're known for being a
1: cinematographer, a producer, and a director. Now, each one of those, we'll call them hats, uh, has a distinctly different job on a, on a film or a TV set and what you're responsible for, you know, how you maybe even approach your job and what you're doing. But out of those three, the ones that you are most cred- often credited for, is there one of them that you prefer the most? The one that speaks to you most as an artist?
0: Well, you know, so I've produced, I've directed, and I've been a cinematographer, and I've experienced artful and artistry in all of those, except producing. I've felt the rush and the endorphin, endorphins of of a beautifully lit scene and beautiful close-ups and you know you know in your heart that this is as good as it gets and that this it, it and you feel moved when i direct and and i I've, I've been lucky enough to direct scenes and i know that this is and i've given notes And I know that the scene and the performances are artful. And I know that's at least one of my movies um, is is artful, maybe even even two, and there would be Never Cry Werewolf and certainly Crow's Nest. And Crow's Nest had one review in particular that I knew that this was, was artistry. I had one, one review which was, This is the best movie you've never seen. But the one that I hold out there was, I want the director to get cancer and die. And I thought, Man. Oh my God, I really moved this person. They really, really, really hate it. And that's good because they felt in conflict. What was it? But there was some, and, and, and I, I directed that movie and I put it together. And I move this person, wow. So, and producing, not so much, but I find it the most freeing, <laughs> you know? It's, okay. you're not in the trenches, kind of.
2: I like that. So this, well, Tim gets into our silly question next. My, mine is a little bit silly as well, just getting toward that, that side of things a little bit with our interview. So as a group, with our our third co-host, Nick, who's not with us right now. We recently started a group watch-through of the Stargate franchise in more or less chronological order, partly for our own entertainment and partly because we've started it for our Patreon content. So looking at the fact that you worked on Stargate Atlantis, and I have been told that at some point in the Stargate watch-through, we will get to Jason Momoa, which is the only reason I'm still going, as I was told that there will be Momoa at some point. So what was it like working on what has now become such a huge um, show, has become such a a, almost a cult classic of the sci-fi world?
0: Working on Stargate Atlantis, the first time I I stepped into the Atlantis Stargate set in the control room with the Stargate, you could feel this sense of mythology, the heritage of the mythology of Stargate, but this... Then new mythology, and that was um, episode two of, of of season one. The pilot had been shot. I came in on the on the second episode, mm-hmm. and you could feel this this mythology that I've never really um, had, never really experienced before. The, the the depth of it, the gravitas, the the weight, the the adventure. That is that is Stargate Atlantis, the puddle jumping. um, Yeah, it's uh, so it it you're 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 faced with, um, you know, experiencing a mythology, the making of a mythology. That's what's so powerful about Stargate Atlantis.
2: I'm really looking forward to getting to Atlantis. We just started SG1. We're only four episodes five episodes into sg1 four episodes in yeah and i'm looking forward to atlantis because i i've watched an episode or two of atlantis at one point bits and pieces here and there and i'm like i i know that i'm more excited about atlantis than i am about the original about sg1 but i am excited to see where it goes and watching its watching its mythology grow through the series will be a lot of fun
1: I think it also helps that we've interviewed more of the cast from Atlantis than we have Uh, like we've, we've interviewed Gary Jones, who was part of, you know, he, the Chevron guy, he was uh, in in both SG one and Atlantis, but we've also interviewed. um, uh, We just, we actually just posted a couple weeks ago, an interview with Jewel state, who is uh, Dr. Jennifer Keller uh, on the series. And so, you know, we've talked with her as well. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that helps a little bit, you know, there's a couple other a couple other people who had some, some smaller bit roles uh, and, in the I show. And I mean, but... in
2: all reality, Jason Momoa.
1: And that's what <laughs> she's, she's sticking around for. That's, that's her, that's her holding point. I'm she's there for the Momoa.
2: I'll, so. I'll, I'll survive.
1: <laughs> She'll make it. She'll get there. All right, Bren, we are at the point in our show where we'd like to finish off our line of questions with what we call our silly question. You can answer this as silly or as serious as you would like. Okay.
0: It's a challenge.
1: All right. We all look in the past and we get nostalgic about something. In 30 years, what will, be, what will people be nostalgic for?
0: In 30 years, I think people will be nostalgic f- for the Western. Ooh. And they will be, be nostalgic for that because that is something that is so... Because it defines, has influenced Kurosawa... And George Lucas, in mm-hmm. particular, it influenced um, the French New Wave filmmakers. One of them said it may have been tr- Truffaut said, "All you need is is a girl and a gun." Um, uh, that, but that's that's a western. The gangster movies were westerns. Public Enemy. These are all the. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the you know the concepts and the conceits of and the motifs of of westerns everything. <laughs> the western has to, what was the, one of the very first movies was a a western. Other than uh, who was it? The, not the Maysel Brothers, but the the French filmmakers shooting people coming out of a factory. But the first narrative was yeah. that that cowboy in in the hat. So they will be nostalgic for real westerns not cg westerns westerns where you can feel the dust and the grit and the sun and the sweat and that's what we lose with cg we lose the the visceral connection Mm -hmm. and nothing has it more than a western i can definitely
2: see that i i grew up watching westerns with my grandpa i can definitely see that that visceral connection it's really cool excellent i like that answer sorry i'm over here just thinking about it with the yeah, no, I can totally see how people will be, people will be nostalgic for westerns. Anyway, I'm good now. <laughs> oh, Brenton, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. Where can our listeners and our viewers go to find out more about you and your work?
0: Well, uh, Brenton Spencer Films on Instagram and Brenton dot is is my website. Uh, yeah, so uh, looking looking. For To break some new things, my uh, uh, development partner—I can't call him my writing partner—but John Shepard, we've done so much work together, and we produced uh, *Crow's Nest*. And at the time, IFC wanted to do a a franchise, Mm -hmm. wanted to do four more, so a series of five. And John wrote—we we beat out, and John wrote two scripts, but you know for various reasons um it it didn't happen none of it being ifc's want or our ability to deliver so that is what we are are pursuing and we are so hopeful that that's that that's going to happen
1: awesome let's look
0: forward to that folks to the maybe so maybe some of the best movies you will have seen because crow's nest was was called one of the best movies you've never seen and, um, and maybe we'll move people but perhaps in a different way than than some of them were moved in the first one but uh well let's hope so uh, yeah.
2: awesome well we will link your website and we will make sure that our viewers know what you've got coming because you've got some cool stuff you've got some really cool stuff coming i'm excited
0: yeah thank you this is this has been a great pleasure i some of the 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 questions that you've Asked the way they they've ignited this incredibly thoughtful, you know, philosophic. I had never considered that the 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 origins of Batman in the sense of his potential superhero. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a rift that came out of our conversation. That was brilliant. It was. It was, it was very fun.
2: cool So it was a very, very cool conversation. We We appreciate you being here so much.
0: Yeah, thank you. I I did too. Thank you. This was a a real, real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We want to take this time to remind everybody that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to help our show continue to grow and get more amazing guests like Brenton Spencer here today to have these fun conversations for you guys to be able to listen to. So please subscribe. It helps us well more than we can ever really tell you and be sure to check out Brenton's work as well. His link to his website will be down below and you can check out his Instagram page as well. But if for whatever reason you are not happy with the content of our show today, please feel free to lodge a complaint with the head of our complaint department. That, of course, is Gorilla Grodd, nemesis of the Flash. You're going to want to send in two copies of your complaint form, though, because Gorilla has a pretty logical filing system. So really, only two copies are required. You have to remember, he's a genius gorilla. But take care in how you report your malfeasances. Because Grodd has a stunning lack of anger control and strength to match. So, although we probably deserve a good reprimand for our less than professional podcasting skills, neither Kathleen nor I want to get our arms ripped off, you know, aka Wookiee style, just because we suck. So, <laughs> be nice, maybe.
2: <laughs> Thank you <Awesome>. again, Breton. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. All, All nice right, guys, and- that's that's gonna finish us up for the FSF podcast. Goodbye. On behalf of the rest of the hosts of the FSF Popcast, we want to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, please contact us by means of Twitter or Instagram using the handle at FSF Popcast. Or go to www.fsfpodcast.com and click on the contact link. Thanks again and hope you enjoyed the episode. Copyright 2023 FSF Popcast reference to any specific product or entity mentioned on this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by fsf podcast the views expressed by the guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent if you have any questions about this disclaimer please contact us via email at info at fsfpopcast.com. original music by jordan michaels